Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james hey this is james alger normally i don't do an intro for many of my guests but this guest is ramit sethi author of i will teach you to be rich he's a good friend of mine part one starts off with Ramit's ideas about how to live like a good, healthy financial life that will get you to wealth. It's slightly different than the way I like to look at it, but maybe that's why I've gone broke so many times. And then the second part, we get into such heated debates over when to stop paying your credit card debt, when 401ks are evil and a heated argument about crypto, which is always fun to do with Ramit. He's so smart, but anyway, Let's go right into it. Thanks. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. This country actually makes it really hard for you to succeed. You wake up, you're given... Uh, first of all, you, you wake up at a time to go to a job which might not fit in with what time you want to go. Fine. Then you're given hyper palatable foods that make you overeat. Then you're given shady, borderline scammy advice from financial companies that tell you, oh, you should invest in this company or you should invest in this account. These aren't even fiduciaries. They're getting my school teacher mom to put her retirement in annuities. Complete bullshit. And then on and on and on, you go through the whole day and you're just lied to. You're being given options that if you truly understood all the different options, you would never choose that. The problem is, Money is such a strong energy in the sense that, I don't mean that in a new age way, I mean, it just, it, it, it rents a lot of mental real estate in your brain, thinking yeah. about money. It turns out that a lot of times the most advanced thing you can do is do the basics and do them fundamentally 
flawlessly. I, I agree, and I think the flip side too. So here's an email I got along the way here. I got an email um, like an hour ago from someone from Angola who was writing to me and says, look, in his country, because of the government, he has no business opportunities. And then I quickly just rattled off 10 business opportunities he can have regardless of what country he lives in. Like, I believe, like, if you're in a jail cell, you're probably limited, but he's not in a jail cell. So a lot of people also think their excuses are special. Mm, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, boy, this is, this is an interesting topic. So if you think about what you want your life to be like in the next 12 months, it doesn't matter if you are naturally like that or not. Some people will say to themselves, I'm not the kind of person who can save money. It doesn't matter. You can still save money. You might not be the natural type of person, but you can put systems in place to be spontaneous, to save money, to have more fun, whatever the case. And by the way, after you do this for a while, you actually become that person. You know, I, there's one thing, you know, your, your pyramid of... I guess investing yeah. options, or I wrote yeah. it down uh, somewhere. I don't 100% agree with that, although yeah. it's hard to disagree because it's correct for the average person. Well, here's the thing, and we should and talk about this. I don't mean this. to put them down. That's the thing. So everyone listening is going to be like, oh, I'm not average. I'm looking for the fucking edge. I'm like, dude, you're, you're asking me about your fucking Olympian-level supplement, and you don't even go for a walk once a, once a year. Like, stop looking for the advanced stuff and get the basics right. Yeah, bring that up, actually, because I have a response to that, too. All right. Um... Uh, I have a question. I don't know. You know, some people want to know at, a, at their age, am I like saving as much as most people my age? I mm. mean, it's hard to find that information. Like, yeah, or I, when is it too late? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just when should that's you be, a good question. What should you do if you're scared? Because a lot of the listeners, my my demographic is is probably similar to yours. Like people always say, what's your demographic? It's got to be something, and really, it's everybody. Yeah. So I have like eighteen year olds. You know, how old's Kylie, Kylie Sotomayor? She's like 30. She's 30. Okay, so, but it's from millennials to 30, she looks young, though. Yeah. 80 year old people, yeah. men, 80 year old men to 20 year old women. So it's the full thing. But uh, some people are scared and some people are trying to find out what they should do with their lives. It's kind of those two I things. I love it. Let's do it. All right, Jay. So happy to have my good friend, Ramit Sethi, author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. You know, what I'm a gonna... studio, by the way. Look at this place. This is awesome. So this is at, as many of my listeners know, this is at the stand-up comedy club that I own, Stand Up New York. And upstairs, there's podcast studios. So we have all these uh, comedy albums around us. And uh, Ramit, uh, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a long intro just because we have a, <laughs> of a... I've known you for like, I think it's like eight years. Yeah. I forgot like who... We met at the at the Cornell Club uh, back like in 2011 or might have even been earlier. I don't even know. And you gave me, you know, it was kind of a first meeting. We were just talking. and and But you gave me one advice, which is to start keeping an email list, which I started doing. And then around 2015, mid-2015, I started to make a business around that email list. Now, I mean, 2018 was like, uh, of all the business I've started, I've never had such an incredible year in terms of revenues and profits just from this one business that revolves around this email list uh you know so it's it's a huge valuable asset and i'm like ah what do i need an email list for? uh and you were like trust me start your email list so yeah. i trusted you and it worked well thank you very much i'm happy to hear it and uh 
I know that if I ever go out to dinner with you, dinner will always be on you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure. You're, you talk about, you don't give the exact number, but you, you basically, there's one passage in here, which I, uh, in your book, which I, I praise you for, which is, um, somebody asked you, um, do you, do you not need to work anymore? And you said that you realize that's right. I don't need to work anymore. And we'll, we'll talk about what financial freedom actually means. Cause obviously you and I both probably work harder than almost anyone we know. Like my, my average day is like a 16 hour day, but to your other points in the book, I do what I love else. Why do it? Uh, but the reason why this is going to be a long interest, we've done so many things together on, I think it was like 2012. I did something for some video. We did some interview for you. You've been on my podcast a bunch of times. One of my first guests, uh, we did a video where we both read our hate mail to each other. I have an example hate thing with me. I brought just in case you, you have something. <laughs> and um, uh, we've talked about your book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, before, but now you have 80 new pages in part because new life experiences have happened to you. I liked your discussion of prenups and you know also the discussions you've had with your new wife about, it's almost like you were doing financial due diligence with her or together which Kevin O'Leary recommends, you know, Kevin O'Leary was Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. Yeah. He wrote a book on relationships. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, he also tells people, uh, like, uh, don't buy lattes. I'm like, listen, if anyone thinks a billionaire is counting his pennies, buying lattes, you are mistaken, my friends. Well, well, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, obviously you have a great chart. Um, what, what's, what does, uh, what's a cheap spender versus a conscious spender. Yes. And I think that's a very important concept just, just for, for mindset. But I agree with you. Like if, if you're like, let's say a latte costs $3 more than coffee from the local deli. It's not like you're ever going to be down to your, you know, for someone who's well on their way and making an income and so on, it's not like you're going to be, if you're down to your last $3, that's another issue. Now you can say it adds up which you do make the point about other items that it does add up. But as one of my favorite comedians who's also been on this podcast, Gary Goldman says, it only adds up if you add it up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the latte thing is a perfect example of the lies and misconceptions when it comes to money. And there are so many lies, as we both know, everybody tells you to buy a house because it's, quote, the best investment. Oh, I loved your discussion of house buying. Yeah, it's not the, the best investment, people, for most people, most of the time. And the latte thing is so prevalent that we actually believe it. And I just want to provide two quick points on the latte thing. First of all, my belief is you should buy as many lattes as you want. And lie number one is that it adds up. So let's dig into that for a second. The concept is if I save $3 a day for the next... 75 years, I go live in a cave, then maybe 200,000 years from now, I'll have enough money to feel safe. Meanwhile, my bones are petrified and I'm, you know, no one's going to find me. I'm gone, long gone. The, the first point is that it doesn't really add up to that much. $3 a day actually does not add up to that much. And you should be focusing on the big wins, getting a great job and negotiating your salary. Like I show you how word for word in the book, you, right, should, you, gave, you gave a bunch of negotiations. So yeah. just to, just, I'll interrupt occasionally just to describe to the listener, um, you, you gave a bunch of negotiating tactics when you're negotiating uh, the raise. We'll, we'll get to it later. I, I want to even add more negotiating tactics to what you put in there. Love it. Yeah, I like to give people the exact words to use because it's yes. one thing to say, oh, go in and be confident. No, I'm like, this is what you say. This is what they're going to say. This is how you respond. Use these exact words. Oh, and by the way, people negotiate on average over $5,000. So that's one. 
Uh, and the second lie about lattes is, look at the amount of time we've spent talking about lattes right now. It's been three, four minutes. We're talking about $3 questions when really we should be talking about $30,000 questions or when you get to a certain level, $3 million well, questions. I, I agree. And this is, again, you know, a lot of this is in, in your book, like particularly the house buying discussion. But if you look at the things that if you didn't make these mistakes, you would easily retire with more than a million, no matter what your income is. One is if you make the wrong decision about a house, and as you point out, there's a uh, the myth of, oh, when you're, when you're renting, you're flushing money down the toilet. You break it down, why that's a myth, what the true costs are, and so on. I've done that in, in articles in a slightly different way, but your discussion is really methodical and, and, and well thought out. But in general, the big money decisions are uh, house, college for your kids, which you'll experience at some point. You know, you've recently married. Marriage yep, is a big huge decision. One. Who do you marry? What is your relationship with money between the two of you? Right, because that's worth either millions or zero in expenses to you. Yep. And your and job. Then, yeah, your job. And your investments. Your investments. And also, um, uh, high, uh, let's say high ticket items. Like, so a latte doesn't matter, but the kind of car you buy and decisions you make around that. Again, a car is not as big as a house, uh, but it's an it, it's a, a big financial decision. Most people would be better spent um, stopping thinking about $3 questions altogether. Just don't even think about it because it's below what you should be thinking about, but spending much more time on the big ticket items. By the time you go to buy a house, if you decide to, you should know essentially everything there is to bu know about buying a house. You should be an expert. You should have a spreadsheet of your own calculations. You should have talked to people who are 10 years older and asked them, what did you not know you'd have to spend money on? Same thing with a car, same thing with getting married. So this can seem like crazy to people because on one hand, I'm saying, just stop talking about $3 questions. It's just not worth it. But if you get the $30,000 questions right, and there's only five or 10 of them in life. Right, well, like we just mentioned. Yeah, that's half of them, them right there. Yeah, yeah almost <laughs> all of them. You can buy all the lattes, desserts, anything you want at that three, five, 10, $15 level for the rest of your life. The problem is the more money, money is such a strong energy in the sense that, I don't mean that in a new age way. I mean, it just, it, it, it rents a lot of mental real estate in your brain thinking yeah. about money. So if you do buy a house and someone like you or me says, oh, buying a house is a bad decision. And by the way, it's not always a bad decision, but most of the time. and that person's going to be very upset. He's going to have cognitive dissonance. Yeah. I just spent, you know, all my money and then borrowed five times that to buy a house. So my brain is telling me I have to be right. Like there's cognitive dissonance. They will get angry. Yeah, I get Yeah, and well, that's threats. why everybody hates you when you wrote those articles about real estate. Same for me. Yeah. They hate it. But they were the most popular articles like exactly. ever. They, because, because the renters are like, oh, wow, finally someone is speaking my language that I've intuitively felt, but I've never been able to articulate the math around it. Because this is a very unpopular topic. Think about it. All the incentives in America are designed to get you, the average person, to spend money on a house. Why? Let's just look at who's behind it. Number one, the biggest, one of the biggest enemies in America, which is the International Association of Realtors or the National Association of Realtors, NAR, they love to lie. They, no matter if prices go down or up for realtors, it's a great thing. They love it. So they're number one. Number two, you have a lot of, uh, you ha actually have the government encouraging people to spend money. Why? They used to tell people it adds to a stable community. 
no evidence that renters or buyers are more or less stable or part right. of a community. What does that even mean? And then you have home improvement stores. You have a variety of industries. Well, it's a $15 trillion mortgage industry also. It's huge. Yeah, so exactly. Let's not forget is, that. This is the biggest, I mean, you're talking about a $50 trillion economy, yeah. but a $15 trillion mortgage industry. These are, these are the, you don't even see their ads. It's just like baked it's, into the it's culture. It's baked into the culture. Literally, Amer the American dream includes 2.5 kids, and a huge purchase. Where well, did that I, come from? I it think, only came in the last 40 years. I think actually the phrase the American dream was in a Fannie Mae advertising yeah. campaign. Like, so, like, and, and your point about, like, think about it from almost um, uh, uh, a master surf relationship. One of the reasons why uh, uh, big corporations love employees who own homes and encourage you to own a home is because then your location is fixed. You can't travel to, uh, you, you, you're, you're, supply of possible job opportunities has become limited. So your demand to be, you know, to kiss their ass has gone up. Yeah. So let's just provide just a tiny bit of context around this because housing is just one part and you can agree or disagree. If you've bought a house or you frankly grew up in this country, your mom or dad probably said phrases like, uh, they're not building any more land. You're throwing money away on rent and do it for the equity. Each of those has a very strong counterpoint that we could make right now. It's easily disarmed argument. When it comes to housing, it's like anything else. I want you to take away the emotion from it. You should acknowledge the emotion because emotion is valuable when it comes to spending money. But I also want you to go from hot to cool. And let me talk about what I mean by mm. that. Hot to cool is this concept that I came up with after we were creating, we were testing a weight loss program in our business. Now we tested it for three years. We ultimately decided not to do it, but we were helping people lose weight and we, had, we hired a full-time trainer and we were going through it. And people would tell me these amazing stories. These were people who were typically 20 to 50 pounds overweight. And they would tell us openly, they would say, when I sit down and I see a plate of nachos, I feel like a demon is trying to convince me to eat it. Every meal I have is a battle against that food. And that think about that. If you're in that situation when it comes to eating nachos or spending on something, that is a very hot emotional valence. It's like you're battling every single day. That's exhausting. And I think for a lot of people listening, they know what that feels like to battle. It's like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm still doing it. And all of us have that in some part of our life or another, okay, all including me. So we went through it and I told him, by the end of this program, roughly eight weeks from now, you are gonna go from hot to cool. Hot is words like guilt, nervous, anxious, embarrassed. These are words people use about food, but also money. And I said, I want you to go to cool. Cool is words like decided. I sat down. I decided I didn't feel like nachos. I didn't order them. Or I decided nachos sound really good and I'm going to go for it. Decided, past, comfortable, confident. These are cool words. So what I want for people to do when it comes to money is first to understand that we shouldn't try to take emotion out of it. Money is inherently emotional. Let's acknowledge that. There's certain things we love spending money on. I hope we get to talk about that. But also, I want people to go from hot to cool. And the way you do that, for example, with a house is you can simply say, okay, let me write down all the messages I've received about housing. I'm throwing money away on rent. Mom and dad told me I need to buy a house because I'm stable. You know, my teacher said, when are you going to buy a house? It's the next step in life. I'm going to write them all down. <laughs> and then I'm going to look at them and say, are these hot or cool? you'll discover that most of the phrases around big purchases are really hot. And then I want to go to cool. Cool means I run some numbers. 
I, I actively seek out articles like yours saying like, what are the downsides of buying a house? Maybe there's stuff I haven't considered. I think to myself, what's the counterfactual? Maybe I'm not throwing money away on rent, just like I didn't throw money away last night when I went out to eat because I paid for a nice meal and I enjoyed it and I paid for my rent and I enjoyed that. It's very similar. So once you go from hot to cool, you're not as you're not subject to the whims of everyone's emotions. And frankly, most of these people don't even know what they're talking about. I want you to go to cool, which is calm. You can still incorporate your emotion and the things you love and hate, but you can also say, you know what? I'm going to make a thoughtful decision about where I spend my money. I think, you know, there's so many important principles in there, but with the hot to cool reminded me not only of some of the things you say, you know, uh, it actually is completely related to your automated savings uh, a portion of this book. The idea that bef- you don't need to make the decision, just have it automatically put, you know, some chunk of your income, um, come up with a plan in advance. So if you have an income, uh, automatically put some of it into savings without even you thinking about it. Or for someone like me, I have a plan when I, like if an investment works out, I automatically put profits in savings without thinking about it. But in terms of weight loss, I, a few years ago, lost like 30 pounds. Yeah, you look great. Thank you. Uh, and, but what I did was, is it's just like what, what you're saying about, uh, you know, people who are dealing with the nachos. It's like an alcoholic. If you go to a bar, you have to use a lot more willpower to make uh, the decision not to drink. So what I started doing was I only ordered out. <laughs> And because you can't order a bag of Doritos from a nice restaurant, like it's not on the menu. You just order your meal and that's it. And I don't really like most, uh, restaurant desserts because I'm, I'm not a big dairy person, but, uh, I used to think, oh, I'm going to go shopping for healthy food and that's going to be the key. But then I did, I just hated it because I didn't, I'd pass the snack aisle and I just, I didn't either. I didn't have the willpower and I'd start loading up on snacks. And once I buy a bag of chips, that entire bag is going in my stomach. And, or I didn't like battling the willpower to like, oh, I got to avoid this aisle. Like that was, it's physically painful. So when I just, if all I do, if I never go to a grocery, this is just for me. If I never go to a grocery store and if I only order out, I'm going to lose 30 pounds because I'm never going to buy the, the worst things, which is like processed carbs and sugars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, I I just want to talk about the similarity between food and money because I have to tell you, in the first edition of this book, which was out in 2009, I wrote about this. The similarities between food and money, there are many, right? We don't count our calories. We don't count where we spend our money. And there's much more on the psychology level. It's right in the first chapter. This time, I was strongly advised to cut out all my references to food because it's become so controversial. It has become so controversial to even talk about losing weight in this country is now considered controversial. And I have to say, I was- Well, think about what's happened along in in the culture. First of all, uh, uh, Americans have become more overweight. Second of all, it's it's now gone through this very predictable process where now uh, the argument went, this is hard. Now it's become- this is actually impossible. It's impossible to lose weight. That's a common argument, okay? It's genetics, even though there's a very obvious counter argument to that, which is why has childhood obesity gone up in the last 25 years? Uh, Genetics don't change in 25 years. And then it's actually become, it's swung the other way saying, it's actually bad to lose weight. That's, That's how far the argument has gone. And I have to tell you, 
when I was when I say I was strongly advised, I was truly strongly advised to take this out of the book. And I refused. Like an editor or? Yeah, somebody involved in the publishing process. And I refused. And I believe now, having gone through a journey, not only with my money, but with my own fitness, you can look at old photos of me. I'm, yeah, you're I like look very different. now. So um, I believe even more that yes, number one, we can control our money and there are ways to do that. Number two, we can control the way that we look and feel based on what we put in and what we monitor. And there are very similar principles. You actually find that people who go through the book and are successful tend to actually go into improving their fitness because there's such similar principles. Well, I think, I think your point of essentially measuring, you, you can only, you can only understand really the things that you measure. So that, so, you know, uh, hedge fund managers, so I'm, I've been a hedge fund manager for many years or a professional investor for two decades now. You, you, it only, there's a saying, it only matters what you measure. So if, if, you know, your returns, even what day are you most likely to make the most returns? What types of investments are good for you to make the returns on? Uh, and it's the same with food or acti or activities. Like you have to kind of do an audit of what you're doing and what's successful and what's not. And then you know how to accelerate what's working and decelerate what's not working. Yeah, and, and your mind will lead you astray. For example, your, your idea of what you just said about how you used to tell yourself, oh, I'm just gonna go to the grocery store and only get really healthy food. That's very nice in theory. We all have these nice theories about our future selves. Our future selves are perfectly disciplined. We work out consistently. We save all our money. We call our mom and dad. We're, we're the best. That's our future selves. But our reality is we basically love comfort. We love watching Netflix. We like to put things off until the next day. And the difference in this book is that as opposed to most personal finance books that actually try to go along the delusion that you're going to magically change your behavior, this book says, look, inherently you and I are all lazy. We're not going to change our behavior. Let's automate it. Let's take six weeks to go through the program, create a plan and automate it so we never have to think about it again. And I believe that by default, if we just go through the day and we make a few good decisions, that our lives should turn out well. I don't believe this, this country actually makes it really hard for you to succeed. You wake up, you're given, uh, first of all, you, you wake up at a time to go to a job, which might not fit in with what time you want to go, fine. Then you're given hyper palatable foods that make you overeat. Then you're given shady, borderline scammy advice from financial companies that tell you, oh, you should invest in this company or you should invest in this account. These aren't even fiduciaries. They're getting you to, they're getting my school teacher mom who retired as a school teacher to put her retirement in annuities. Complete bullshit. And then on and on and on, you go through the whole day and you're just lied to. You're being given options that if you truly understood all the different options, you would never choose that. And, and I'll give you an example. I posted a, a video on my Instagram account about Starbucks. I love Starbucks. I think they're great. I think they're an amazing company. There was a snack little snack pack. It had vegetables and carrots and stuff. And I was traveling and I looked at it and it looks great. You know, you buy it, you say, oh, I'm going to be healthy. And then if you actually look at the calories and the macros, which most people do not understand because it's like a different language, that would have been half my calories for the day. Right. And that was a snack pack. That was carrots. Why? So this is a whole thing. I'm not saying that Starbucks should change. Starbucks is a company, they can do what they want for their customers. What I am saying is that for you and me and the average person, I think life should be a little bit easier where if we make a few correct choices, our life will turn out in a good way. And, and the choices aren't necessarily um, 
ag- aggressive choices like do this and you'll succeed. It's almost like it's almost better to say don't do this yeah. and you'll succeed because I think again it's the idea of if you avoid the bar, if you never go in a bar, you're not going to drink. If you never go in a bar or a wine store, you're probably going to cut out 90% of your drinking for an, if you're an alcoholic. But but we're all, you know, we're money holics, we're foodaholics. So for me, I, I think a very important thing is not that um you know, it's good to have good intentions, but it's also to recognize what your willpower is. So I recognize if I'm going shopping at night, I don't have any more, I have willpower fatigue. It's, it's, an, it's an actual name or decision fatigue. I'm going to go in the snack aisle and buy 20 bags of potato chips. So avoid, for me, I have to avoid the grocery store. For money, if you have money in the bank, there's kind of, everyone tells, your friend tells you to invest, your, your, your wife wants to buy a house, uh, your kids want to go to college. It's much easier to just, oh, the, that money is already in a 401k. I can't take it out until yeah. I'm 59 and a half. Uh, you know, here's what we have to, to work out. Like if you, if you automate things or, or reduce the opportunity for decision fatigue, I think that's a big success. 100% agree. I think that I read a very interesting comment um, on Reddit where somebody said successful people tend to use the word always and never a lot. Hmm. For example, I'm just going to make up some here. I never eat dessert. That's not true. I do eat it, but that's a great rule. I always save 20 to 30% of my income. That is a true rule. In fact, when my wife and I were starting to talk about money, I said to her, I said, look, I'm really flexible on day-to-day spending. It doesn't really matter to me, but there are a few big things that are important. One, I want us to make sure that we are saving 20 to 30% minimum. Because if we're doing that right, then all the rest of the decisions are going to be fine. Uh, I also know that, you know, I've set up some rules like if I travel above a certain length of time, then it's business class. Now, by the way, I didn't have these rules all along and they change over time. I couldn't afford flying business class, but now that's one for me. I also have another rule, which is there are certain areas of life that I have no budget on. None. So education, whether it's buying books, courses, traveling to meet someone who's an interesting person, I don't care. I, I love, by the way, and this is just a, a small side thing, your rule, if you like a book, buy it instantly. Yeah, R- don't even book think buying about rule. I love that because that's I just do that now. Like, since <sighs> I've heard that from you, because uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know why I would have thought about it before. Like, it's stupid to even think about it. Okay, I like this book. Now I just instantly buy without thinking about it. And and that's, again, your approach, which is reduce the times you have to think. Yeah, and, and then when it comes to an important thing, really think about it. Like, spend the time. And that could be, by the way, being present with your friends or your partner. Like, when you go on a vacation or you're even at home or you go out on a date, whatever it may be, you can actually be truly present. You don't have to have your phone out. You're not looking at messages. You're not worrying about money because you know that you've set everything up correctly. That's the... That's the dream that I Will Teach You To Be Rich allows you to do. I want to real quick, really quickly ask you about the title. At first, I think everybody's first reaction to this title, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, is that it's obnoxious. What? It's aggressive. What? I'm sure you've heard this a billion times. This is the first time I've ever hearing this, James. (laughs) This really hurts me. But I think... You know, it's a New York Times bestseller, so clearly people got over it, and I'm sure you've sold millions of copies. But um, what I love about the title is that the title is actually really important. It's it's in your face for a reason. 
people need to think about money. They don't need to hide their thoughts or their decision-making or be scared about confronting their issues with money. That's why this is so in your face is because it should be. Thank you for saying that. I, you know, the, the name has been a curse and a blessing. <clears throat> I don't know that I would name it what I named it today. I chose it in 2004 uh, when I was in college and you know, I was sober <laughs> when I picked it. Like I, I actually thought about it and I just did it. And I didn't know all this fancy branding and stuff that I now know, but it was just, it was just the way I talked, right? I, I've always been very direct when it came to money. I always wanted to talk about money in a way that you and I be sitting here right now talking about, telling stories, making fun of ourselves, making fun of other people, and then just straight to the point. So when people come, I've read a lot of money books. And I found that I was frustrated when they would say like, okay, here are like five things to consider when you find a bank. I'm like, why don't you just tell me what bank you use? And while you're at it, why don't you tell me the banks that you hate? Because you've been studying this stuff for 15 years. Just tell me the correct answer. And so, and I remember I was watching Oprah one day and Oprah did this. Oprah said like, these are my favorite things. And everyone's like, oh my God. And I couldn't understand it because I had thought they would think it was scammy if Oprah recommended something. But watching the reaction of her audience, I realized they trust her. And she's built that trust. So they actually want to know because she will only recommend things she truly loves. Well, and you know what's interesting? Like you, you know, recommend banks and you also trash some banks. Yeah, the, 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 the shitty ones. Can I say them? Yeah. Okay, Bank of America sucks. If you're using Bank of America, you're probably using it because you, your mom and dad signed you up when you were seven years old. Grow up. Get a better bank. They're going to screw you whether it's today or tomorrow. And Wells Fargo, predatory, horrible bank that was fined by the government, they are also okay, terrible. Stop with those two for a second. Okay. And <laughs> how and, much time do we have on this? Go on. And and but the reason I want you to stop with those two is because those are the two banks Warren Buffett invests in. Yeah. And so if Warren, so so the good the good side is if a bank is big and screws his customers, it's probably a good investment on the other side because well, they're making the most money. So that's so, so avoid, if Warren Buffett invests in, in what, what are, look at what insurance companies he invests in, look at what banks he invests in because they're the ones keep making as much money as possible. That's really interesting. I, I In the book, I added a new section on um, on this this research, which this analyst found, he thought, how can these banks that have worse and worse and worse customer service ratings, like you would think that the better customer service they have, the more money they make. And it turns out in the paradoxical world of banks, the worse customer service they have, the better their stock returns. So what's going on there? And it turns out that there's this unique oasis, we can call it a hellscape, within banks where the worse they treat their customers, the more they actually make. But it turns out also that there are a few banks that treat their customers really well. These are the accounts that I use. So banks, credit cards, investment firms, I name them by name and I tell you, look, you don't have to switch if you don't want to. Some people, they want to deviate, okay. But my belief is if you find somebody you trust, and hopefully you're listening to this or you read the book, you talk to a friend, if you trust what I have to say, then by default, when I find someone I trust, I listen to everything they say. And unless there's a pressing reason to deviate from what they tell me, I just put myself in their hands. So if you put yourself in the hands of the recommendations of that book, your financial life will be much better off. Yeah, and I, I think you give, and and again, I know this sounds like we're promoting the book. We're not. By the way, I just want to say you did a great podcast with Tim Ferriss about the book. People should listen to that. We're going to talk all over the board. But I think if I'm understanding correctly, you kind of give sort of a basic 
mental model for how you should view finances in general. And if you stick to that model, which is very simple to learn, you say a six week program, you know, no BS, no excuses. Uh, if you stick to this model, it's a way of taking out the willpower fatigue, the decision fatigue. It's a way of simplifying basic money-making decisions. And if you just follow that, the end results are going to be good. You don't get into any aggressive, you know, like with, with house buying, you present, okay, let's look at the total cost of buying a house. A $200,000 house might end up costing 770,000 over the course of 30 years. Let's just compare that to renting and what else you could do with the money um, that you save and, and so on. So that's like a mental model. You don't then say, all right, but if you do want to buy a house, look at the obituaries, find everyone who died in the area because their uh, estate will probably sell the house at a big discount. Like there are like aggressive tricks that if someone is willing to put in the time and effort, they could turn everything into a good decision, but you stick to just simple model for people who want to enjoy other things in their life. And I think that's the difference between, you know, for every category, even in investing in stocks, there is a way to be a little more aggressive, but you don't, you don't have to be to enjoy life and to have financial freedom. I think that's correct. I think that um, I believe a few core beliefs went into that. Number one, most people are mostly the same. And this is really important. People love to believe that they're unique and different. I get emails every single day, including on the way over here. Does this work for me if I live in Spain? Does this work for me if I have $25,000 of debt? Does this work for me if I'm a left-handed albino, you know, who hasn't seen the sun in two months? Yes, it works. Stop thinking you're a special snowflake and focus on adapting the material for yourself. So that's number one. Most people are mostly the same. And when you optimize for the 95% that you are the same, then you earn the right to focus on that last 5% where you might be different. So that you wouldn't believe the number of people who focus on that last 5% when they haven't even got the basics right. Okay, yeah, that's number I agree one. with that. Number two, people think they're a lot more advanced than they really are. You know how many people come to me and say, oh, for me, <laughs> these tips work. They're so simple. They're so basic. I don't know. I'm really looking for that advanced thing. What do you, what do you think about this all-weather portfolio? What do you think about it? I said, how much money do you have in savings? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I have like $70, but like I'm working hard. Why are we talking right now? Read the book. You're not advanced until you have maximized every basic opportunity. And in fact, I have a course on advanced personal finance where I do get into some more aggressive stuff. It turns out that for a lot of people, yes, there are some tax advantages you can have when you have a lot of money. And yes, there are some things you can do like hire a personal CFO as I've done. But it turns out that a lot of times the most advanced thing you could do is do the basics and do them fundamentally flawlessly. I, I agree. And I think the flip side too, so here's an email I got along the way here. I got an email um, like an hour ago from someone from Angola was writing to me and says, look, in his country because of the government, he has no business opportunities. And then I quickly just rattled off 10 business opportunities he can have regardless of what country he lives in. Like I believe like if you're in a jail cell, you're probably limited, but he's not in a jail cell. So people also, just like they think they're more advanced, a lot of people also think their excuses are special. Mm, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's really interesting. I, boy, this is, this is an interesting topic. So I agree with that because I get these emails all the time. But on the other hand, I got to tell you another story. I had I was out with a couple of entrepreneurs, and uh, I was uh, they've b b been very successful. And I said to them, I said, you know, I feel so fortunate that I was born in America, where I can build a business like this. I can help millions of people, 
and nobody's coming and kicking down my door and demanding that I pay for the electricity or some bribe that I have to pay 30% of whatever I make to. And uh, one of my friends said, well, I could have made it anywhere. And I had come back from India and I, I looked at him like, is it like, is this a joke? And I said, you know, like if you are a maid in India, it's very likely that your children will be maids. And maybe if you're lucky, you get the opportunity to get a, a nice, decent education. And maybe your child might work in, you know, maybe a tech support. And eventually, generationally, you can change. And he just didn't believe it. And I, I just kind of want to also acknowledge that, you know, people use the word privilege and this and that. Like having gone, my family, my parents were born in India, having gone and visited a lot and seen what I've seen there, and for anyone listening who's been to a different country, especially a country that maybe is not European, you realize that mobility is totally different than it is in America, like completely. The fact that I was a son of immigrants, I went to college, I graduated with a graduate degree, and now I do what I do living in Manhattan, unfathomable to other countries. With that said, I, I think I agree with you that we all believe our excuses are unique um, and that what we can focus, what I prefer to focus on is like, look, there are lots of systemic issues, especially now. I totally agree, but I focus on what I can control. Well, I mean, no matter, okay, I will admit, I mean, you can't even say, I mean, there, there is obviously there's such thing as privilege and there is such thing as, you know, some people in, in unfortunate situations should get more help in some ways than, than others. But I find that the people who want to succeed, whether they're, no matter what their demographic they're going to find ways around all the obstacles. Like there's plenty of people in every demographic that just have excuses. And then there's plenty of people in every demographic that succeed by getting, I, I mean, I'm, I have every privilege in the world. And yet I've gone like from, you know, selling, building a company from scratch, selling it, making millions, and then going dead broke, making all the worst financial decisions and going dead broke. And the only one of the ways I solved it is not, people always want to know what, what's the formula to bounce back? Like what stock did you buy or what business did you buy? And they also want to know, well, how did you lose all that money? It must've been a lot of drugs and hookers. And- Wait, was it? No. <laughs> Here's what it was. You make, you know, I, I never had had a lot of money before. I was always poor and then I had a lot of money. I paid for my college. I paid for everything in my life. And then suddenly you have a lot of money. I would basically spend it not on lattes, but on really big items like a house I couldn't afford, like not even your math here, just a house I simply couldn't afford. And, and when I made investment decisions, I wouldn't say, okay, this seems like a good investment. I'm going to put a little into it. I would say, man, this is great. I'm going to put everything yeah. <laughs> into it. And so now, you know, I think the most important thing for me is I keep all, I'll, I'll spend on anything, but I just keep the position sizes much smaller. Like when I make an investment now, even though I have more than I've ever had before, I do it. My investment sizes are like maybe one tenth the size they used to be. Wow. The, the, the smaller I invest, the more I make. Now that's interesting. So a couple of things that I noticed about that. Number one, you have some rules, right? And if you ask people, like I just posted this thing, which anyone can listen and can search for, remits 10 money rules. And you can agree or disagree with it, but I, I posted it because I wanted people to see the thought that I put into my money rules. Uh, I, I got to do that. Okay. Like yeah. Everyone's got, and so I asked people, tell me your money rules. And a lot of people had some really interesting ones. You know, they're like, 
I don't think about spending on this. And then a lot of people also interestingly said, I don't have any rules at all. So think about that. They're going through life basically like a gliding bird, just being moved by the winds left and right. And if that's you in this country, you're going to be, the wind is going to take you to the wrong place. It's going to make you spend on stuff to keep up with your friends. It's going to make you think that you're doing a good job when you're really not. It's going to take you to the wrong places. So what I want people to do is really create their own rules. And by the way, your rules, totally different than mine. And that's great. Right. I have a reader in the book who told me right at the beginning, uh, I, I, I fought to make sure I got photos of my readers and their results using this book because it's been 10 years and now it's updated 80 new pages. And a lot of people have done crazy things, paid off hundred thousand dollars in loans, made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's just from 10 years. So one guy told me, he said, my wife and I read this book. We retired at 35 and 36 and we drive around the country in an RV. And I was like, I live in Manhattan in a high rise building. I'm like, that sounds like hell to me. But I love that he did it. That's his and his wife's rich life and they decided. So when it's interesting about the psychology thing you mentioned about how you had never had that kind of money. So you just started throwing it around. Because yeah, you don't know, you you. You know, I put my 10,000 hours into being broke and worried about money. <laughs> and then suddenly I had one hour yeah. of having money. I had no expertise in keeping money. So, so many people in this country teach you how to save, but almost nobody teaches you how to spend. And so we have no rules around spending. We don't know what's worth it and what's not. And you can see this because people will look at something like an expensive restaurant and they'll say, just like I used to, ha, that's so stupid. Why would they go there? I can pay one-tenth the price and get just as full. Well, your money lens on life, if you say that, is that you believe the point of eating out is to get full. Hey, I used to believe that. I'd eat at Taco Bell. It'd be like eight bucks and I would be amazingly full. But now as you grow up, you realize, well, there are different lenses to view the process of eating out through. Uh, If I take my parents, I want the lens of security. I want to know that we're going to get a table and it's going to be quiet so we can talk and enough light that they can see the menu. If I'm going out with my friends and we're going out for a great time, right? I want to have a different lens. And then sometimes I just want novelty. So I want to go to a restaurant. I've never had this kind of food. There are different lenses to view the world of travel through. I used to look at people when I would pass them in the business class first part of the plane. And I would look at them and say, ha, 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 so stupid. They spent four times on this same flight and we're all getting to the same place. My money lens was frugality, as most Americans is. But I should have said, wow, if they have the money to afford it, why would they choose to spend four times the price when we're getting to the same place? And then you discover there are lots of other reasons to fly. Comfort, safety, or frankly, you just want to. Right, and 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 also, to your, it's the same thing as the latte factor. Like when I, and it's important to measure how you succeed and how you fail. So when I look at the poor decision-making I made, the, the several times I went broke, uh, it was never because I flew business or first class too many times. Mm-hmm. It was always because I made like, let's say 10 really bad, large investment decisions. Ooh. So if I avoided those if I avoided various features in those decisions, like for instance, the size of it or the quality of the work I did, you know, there was another, there was another factor. I would, I would, my worst investments were the ones I did by myself. Oh, so, that's interesting. So, cause like, let's say you were starting a business and you yeah. were a young guy 
And I'm thinking like, oh, that's a great business. Mistake number one, me deciding. Mm. Mistake number two is he's a young guy. I'm going to just ask for a third of his business and give him like, you know, a big size. Uh, so, that's, so now I'm doing it by myself because I'm being greedy. I think I can get the most percentage. So those two types of decisions, I don't make anymore. So I, you, you, you track the data and you observe, you saw when I do these things, I tend to fail. Right. And that's the, when I look back at all four or five times, I don't even know how many times I've gone broke. I've blocked it out. But, uh, <laughs> when I look at all the decisions I made, that's the decision-making process is that I was, I would invest too large and I would think I was smart enough yeah. to call it. So now I do the reverse. I only co-invest with somebody smarter than me. Nice. Like, so they're doing all the work and they know how to do the work better than me. And I, I invest one tenth the size. I don't care what percentage I own. I just invest very tiny because then I never have to think about it again. I'm much more diversified. And you point out in the book, diversification, no matter how you do it, is a key to success. Yeah. I, I, now you're making me think about my mistakes with money. So my mistakes were different, but still mistakes. My first mistake in my early 20s was being really judgmental about how other people spent. Hmm. And the business class is one example where instead of disparaging the people sitting at the front of the plane, I should have gotten curious. I call it D to C, disparagement to curiosity. And I should have said, why? How, first of all, what kind of jobs do they have that they can afford to do this? And second, why? If they have this kind of money, why would they fly here? So I should have done that. I should have done the same thing with, you know, people staying at certain hotels, um, all those things. And I wish right, I had- because you'll never, you probably never, nobody goes broke because they fly business too many times. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's other decisions and other mistakes people make, as you pointed out. So I should have been more curious about all different kinds of stuff. Then the second thing is, I think I was, um, I was a little too utilitarian. I was too, I, I should have had more fun with money. That's something that I've, I've really changed in my own experience now. So like, for example, if someone asked me to go to um, some festival, some music thing, Coachella, like I'd rather be dead than go to Coachella now. Right. But like at 24, I should have just said yes. Because like, what's the worst that happens? I don't even know how long this thing is. Two days, three days, I don't even know. But like anyone could do something for two or three days and I guarantee I could have had a crazy experience and a great story and a great memory. Well, well that's utilitarian, right? Like- you you saved a few dollars in your bank account, dollars that you had and could have afforded, and it wasn't gonna. You never were gonna go broke because you went to Coachella, and but but so that was the utilitarian side that you think. But there's a utilitarian side because to going to Coachella, I'm not recommending anyone go to Coachella. Don't but be, <laughs> you would have had a great story. You would have had something to write about. You would have made maybe more money because you have something to write about later. Business class. There's a utilitarian yeah. side to that, which is. You're more relaxed when you land. You can go straight from the airport to meetings without looking, you know, like a mess. And I always look like a mess, but at least <laughs> less messy. And uh, there's a utilitarian side to, yeah. to having a good experience. But, but I, you're right. You're right. However, I think I should have just... T Imagine you have a pair of glasses and you're, most people's glasses on spending is pure frugality. They All they want to talk about is how little they spent. That's their entire money lens. So what I'm encouraging people to do now is to take that lens off and to actually put on different lenses. There are lenses of convenience, business class. There are lenses of results, like getting a personal trainer. Yeah, you could do it for free on YouTube. You'd be fine. You'd do great. But you can get better results by getting a trainer. And then there's pure lenses of just, I want it. And what I should have done with Coachella, I could have used the utilitarian one and twisted it, but I should have just said, yes, fun. And so now 
I have really tried to instrument that in my life because I have to say, some people are just naturally more spontaneous. And I envy that. In a way, that's so cool. For me, I, one, I've just become more comfortable because now I really don't use money as an excuse to not do something. Like back then I would have said, oh, I'm saving money. I had money. I could have done it. it was, but that's a politically correct excuse. The two politically correct excuses in American society, number one is I don't have time. And number two, I can't afford it. Those are politically correct. Now, sometimes they're true, but a lot of times they're just a story we tell ourselves. Hmm. Um, now it's like, okay, one, if I see something that's interesting, let's just do it. Two, I learned this really interesting concept called planned spontaneity. And it sounds like, if you're listening to me and you think I sound like a psychopath, I get it. It does sound like a psychopath, but I learned this from another guy who's like me. And he's like, I want to be more spontaneous, but I just, I don't have that thing in me that other people seem to have. They are like, oh, what's down this alleyway? Let's go. And then they have a crazy, crazy time that night. He's like, I've never done that. So he said that he's got a wife and kids. He said that his family loves it when he's spontaneous. So he kind of put these two things together and he said, all right, I want to be spontaneous, but I don't really know how to do it. So I'm going to plan it out. So in December of every year, he plans a spontaneous thing to do once a quarter. I mean, listen to how regimented this guy is, but I love it. Because so one in the first part of the year, the first quarter, he'll go to school, he'll take his son out of school early and he'll say, we're going away for a three-day weekend. And to his son, it's purely spontaneous. And it's amazing. His son loves it. To him, he's like, oh, I had this plan like four months ago. So my point, the thing I learned from this guy and my point to everybody is, if you think about what you want your life to be like in the next 12 months, it doesn't matter if you are naturally like that or not. Some people will say to themselves, I'm not the kind of person who can save money. It doesn't matter. You can still save money. You might not be the natural type of person, but you can put systems in place to be spontaneous, to save money, to have more fun, whatever the case. And by the way, after you do this for a while, you actually become that person. You know, it, it's it's interesting because all related to this umbrella idea, which I think is all throughout your book, which is plan in advance um, formulas for dealing in the future with things that are either difficult or confusing to you or you don't know about. So for instance, uh, of, uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, I got this extra money. How should I save it? You're saying- Yeah, you should never have that question. Right, here are the ways to save it. Here's how you automate it. You never have to think about it. You could think about it like five seconds a year. You should never, if you've gotten to the point where you have to say, oh, what do I do with this extra money? Or conversely, how do I pay my debt off? The problem is months and years back. So if you're listening and you're like, oh, well, like, what am I supposed to do? The answer is today you make a plan using the book and you can say for the next, if I have debt, I want to know exactly the month and year it will be paid off, which is easy, right? By the way, people in debt, when they write me, this is interesting. 95% uh, of them don't know how much they owe. It's classic. Uh, and it's not surprising, right? Who would want to open up those emails or bills when you just know, you, you don't know the number, but you know it's bad. So that's number one. And then like 99.999% do not know the debt payoff date, the month and year that their debt will be paid or, off. Or the total amount that they'll pay. So yeah, they know, oh, nobody that. knows that. Like yeah. 0%, I can tell you confidently know that. So imagine how you would feel if you're somebody who's in debt, whether it's $5,000 or $235,000, as I spoke to someone recently who has that much in student debt. Imagine how it would feel to say, you know what, I've got this debt but I know that it's going to be paid off in 16 months. And by the way, you don't have to do anything. 
it's all automated. So 16 months, you brush your teeth, you breathe oxygen, that debt is paid off. And then imagine on the other side, you're like, oh, how long will it take to have a million dollars? That's not hard. It's not hard. It's not magic. It's math. And so you can see exactly how long it will be. I actually don't like when people talk about a million dollars because most people don't have a conception of what that means. You ask people, what, what is your rich life? Guess what they say when I ask them that question? What? Their a million first, dollars. <laughs> yeah. So if they have a number, it's a million dollars, which like nobody really knows what that means right. if, unless you've earned it. And so, and by the way, it's different if you live in Kansas or New York. It's so different depending on your age. The other thing they say is, um, I want to pay off my debt and be able to travel. And I think to myself, okay. So I ask him, oh, like uh, how long will it take you to pay off your debt? Well, I don't know. Where would you travel to? Oh, like someplace with a beach. Okay, cool. I like that. Like, where would you stay? The conversation stops. Most people have never thought more than two minutes about their rich life. And if their answer to their rich life question is, I want to pay off my debt, what a dim dream. What a dim dream. That's not going to motivate you to actually make a few key decisions to live a rich life. If your entire, if winning is paying off debt, you're actually losing. And so what I do with people is I do something completely different. And I want everyone listening to go through this exercise with me. Let's do it with you, James. What do you absolutely love spending money on? Love. I mean, to be honest, I don't spend a huge amount on, on too many things. I, uh, he's lying. We're going to find this out. Watch. No, no, but I, I, uh, I love doing this podcast. I love the things I love to do. Yeah. Don't require money. I love, uh, doing this podcast. I love reading. I love writing. I don't really like traveling that much, mm -hmm. but I will, I will tell you, uh, things that go. are extreme that I love to spend money on. First off for me, c commute length of commute is everything. So wherever I spend most of my time during the day, I like to live as close as possible to How it. How close do you live? 150 feet away. Amazing. And did you care about price when you chose that place? No, I was willing to pay more than I, out of my comfort zone to live there. Now I've grown into, I've grown into it. So uh, then I even moved to a, a bigger apartment in the building. But for a while, I was, you know, for many years, I was just living in Airbnbs. So wherever I would end up spending most of my time, I would Airbnb in that area. Okay. And so that, that made life easy for me. And then I didn't care what I spent either. Okay, love that. So length of commute in your relatively price uh, insensitive and anything else that you put your money towards that yeah. you love? Well, no, it's more, I hate travel so much. Uh -huh. I will pay just about any amount to make travel as easy as possible. Possible so what me. does that mean? Like business class? No, no, I'll fly if 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 it's reasonable and I'm let's say I'm taking my whole family with me, I'll fly private. Wait, why have I never gotten an invitation, dude? All right, come to California with me. The end let's of June. do oh my god, <laughs> this is amazing. Okay, shut the podcast off. I'm going on a private jet. Let's do this. James, my man. Okay, so for, can, can I just point a couple things out? First of all, you started off by saying, I don't really like to spend on much. And then within 30 seconds, uh, yeah, I'm totally price inelastic I, I, and I fly a jet. <laughs> I knew you would say that, but that's really the only two things. <laughs> and here's that's, a, that's all, here, here's only a, a jet. Here's the thing. It, I used to look at the jet situation and think, oh, this is disgusting. Like yeah. it's, you know, this many times more than flying even first class on okay. uh, to a place. But a, you know, and then I would try to do the math, like, oh, I'm traveling with my whole family. The math whatever. makes no sense. Right, the private. math makes no sense. But then I look back to all the times I've gone broke in the past, 
these are trivial money decisions compared to the decisions I would make when I went broke. So I know I'm not going to go broke by making this decision. Okay. And so then what I do is I figure, okay, what's a reasonable amount per year I could do this. I know I'm going to be beneath that, Yep. you know, cause I don't really travel so much. That's how much I hate it. And boom, then the, now the decision, I used to think for days about the decision. Yep. Now the decision's easy. Okay. And I don't always do it, but when the when it falls into the formula, I do it. All right. So we've learned two things in the last 60 seconds. Number one, uh, We've learned that I'm going on your next vacation. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're invited. Bring Thank cast. You. And the next thing we've learned is this concept I call money dials. And I just want to talk about this for everybody listening. A money dial, everyone has at least one, most of us have a few, is the thing that we love to spend money on. And it's very easy to find your money dial. First of all, you can just Google money dials. I wrote this whole article about it. But in the last 30 days, we've all spent money on something that we just love. It makes us happy. And in our dreams, we'd actually love to spend more on it. If you could spend more on convenience and less travel or better travel experience or commute experience, would you? Yeah, like if there was a teleportation machine Bingo. you'd spend and anything. it costs double private, I would do it. Done. Okay, so I love it. So the most common money dials are, um, uh, the most common money dials are travel, People love to spend on travel. Health and fitness is a really common one. They'll have a gym, things like that. Uh, mine is a relatively rare one called convenience. You share it. And it's like, I convenience will- Convenience is so important. Yeah. And there's scientific studies. Commute, length of commute is correlated to uh, higher levels of happiness. Exactly. Look at that smile on your face. See, when somebody talks about their money dial, they just light up. And you say like, what do you do? And then all of a sudden they turn into these psychos. They're like, oh my God, like this is me oh my God, when I wake up in the morning, my calendar is like perfectly organized. When I travel, I have a, literally something called a travel protocol that's activated. My plants get watered. My assistant handles my email different. Like it's magic. Now you're listening to me. You're like, this guy's a serial killer. But to me, that's my money dial. Now, why do I call it a money dial? Because I ask people, what do you love to spend on? And they tell me, and like I said, sometimes, oh, food is a really common one. That's actually one of the top two, food. People love to go out to eat, cool. I say to them, what if you could spend double or quadruple on it? What would that look like? So for people, they, they're stunned. They've never thought about this. The thing they actually love to spend on, they've never thought about what it would be like to turn that dial. And so with food, they'll say to me, oh my God, I would eat at every Michelin-starred restaurant in the city. Okay, and I say, okay, now what if you didn't just double it, you quadrupled it? Now they're, they're like really struggling, but they're loving this experience. They say, I'd bring my parents with me or I'd bring my friends with me. Okay, now we're talking. And what I tell people is part of the I will teach you to be rich philosophy is that I want you to spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Now that's a nice phrase, but most people have never thought about what well, extravagance truly means. Yeah, what's something that they dialed down that they were spending high, like what are they spending on that they hate that they wish they could dial down. Classic example. So number one is food. They're eating out at places that don't really give them joy just because it's like convenient or, oh, I was walking past Chipotle and da-da-da-da. When in reality, the people who have food as their money dial, they have very specific places they want to go eat. And they're like, oh my God, if I could eat at this omakase place or this new restaurant that opened up that has a three-month-long wait list, I'm like, if you could do that, would you? They're like, I would love it. But instead, they're dripping a little bit here and there out to someplace they don't even really like when they could actually focus on something they love. And then to tie it all together, 
if you get the big wins right in life, like if your investments are automated, your savings are automated, you can actually turn that dial to double, triple, quadruple. So that's a classic thing people spend you know, on. And I, and I think here's where it adds up. Like, let's say you're a smoker and you stop smoking. You know, like heavy smokers buy a pack a day or whatever. And you could say if you just stop smoking, which is a, a, a related to so many uh, causes of death and so on. If you just stop smoking, that's an extra business class trip instead of coach trip a month. Yeah, so I, I think the psychology, I agree. However, I think the psychology is slightly different. The minute I go to someone and I say, if you just stop doing X, stop eating out, stop smoking, stop whatever, they're just like shut down. Okay, and that is what 99.9% .9 of personal finance people do. The first chapter of every money book is, why don't we figure out how much you spent in the last month? And everyone's just like, fuck this. They close the mm -hmm. book and throw it away. Instead, I start by asking people what they love. And it turns out everyone has got something they intuitively know they love spending money on. And no one has ever been challenged. What if you could actually spend more? More. And when you do that, when I, for example, there's one about experiences and it's such an interesting psychological finding. If you're a parent, you intuitively know if you want to give your little kid a magical experience, let's say you've got a seven-year-old, where do you take your kid at seven years old? Disney World. Disney World. Everybody answers Disneyland or Disney World. And if you want to double or triple your money on that experience, what would you do to create an even more magical experience? I don't know. You'd get them the extra fast pass, the private VIP tour. You'd stay at the Disney hotel so you can get in an hour early, right? People get this. But as soon as it comes to us as adults, suddenly the minute we start thinking about this, we do something very peculiar. We talk ourselves out of it. And I had a, I had a woman on one of my um, calls and she said, she said, Ramit, I need some rules for how to splurge. And like, um, first of all, I was like, I think I've created these automatons who only look for rules. And I was like, why don't you just tell me what you like? She's like, well, you know, my husband and I, we make good money. We go to Starbucks every week and we splurge on whatever we want. But like, I don't know what else. So we were on a call with a bunch of people. And I said, guys, without knowing her, what do you think she should splurge on? And all the chat rooms started going crazy. And people were saying massage and facial and this and that. And, and, she, and she goes, she sees all these things. And she goes, oh, I already do all those things. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? So, so then she, I keep pressing her and she couldn't come up with anything. I said, okay, let's walk through your day. What kind of place do you live in? She said, I have a house. I have three kids. I said, when you wake up, how do you feel? She's like, I feel stressed. I said, why? My house is dirty. I said, tell me about that. I knew it. I already knew where this was going, but I had to bring her along with me. She said, well, I really love a clean house, but um, I just, you know, I want it. But the thing is, I have my kids cleaning the house with me. So her kid's like three years old, four and five. And she said, you know, I'm teaching them how to clean and they scrub with the paper towels. And I said, let me ask you a question. I think it's amazing what you're doing as a parent. I said, how clean is your house once your three-year-old's done with it? She's like, not that clean at all. I said, would it make sense for you if experience is part of your money dial to just hire someone to come in? And she's like, you know what? That would be amazing. But the thing is, and then she spent the next two minutes talking herself out of it. My kids do it. They're learning, da, da, da. And I said, at the end, I said, you know, congratulations. You just told me something you would love to do, but you spent the next two minutes talking yourself out of it. Right, and it wasn't even something that expensive. Like most- Money has nothing to do with it. Right. So, so, so I think the, the main focus, the main, the main thing there is when you ask the person who had the vacation and he didn't get further than, oh, I'll be at the beach- he only thought like two steps into, yeah. into the things he loves, but people, like I noticed this recently, 
when I I bought something recently, you know, I used to not buy anything. So it's like a new thing for me yeah. to now live in an apartment where I'm actually have a place for things that I love. So it feels weird every time I, it's like out of my comfort zone to buy something I love for myself. It, the, money is not even a factor at all. Um, not because of the, they're expensive. They're actually usually pretty cheap. Like a cleaning lady in most cases is, is pretty cheap. But uh, there was this arcade game I loved as a kid. Which one? Defender. Okay. Uh, and I looked online. There was a vintage arcade box, like classic arcade box. I had a place for it in my apartment. And it was only like 300 bucks. And it just felt weird, though, yeah. making the decision to buy it. Like, it does feel weird to, yeah. to buy extra things for yourself that are out of the norm. Extra things, extra experiences. And then other people think, by the way, oh, my God, this is, like, the most amazing thing because it does seem like an extravagance. Well, it, you could say a lot of things are an extravagance for sure, right? And And sometimes they are. But the question that I want people to grapple with is number one, can I afford it? If you can afford, if you can't afford it, then let's not even talk about it at all. Focus on saving and investing first. Second, do I truly want it? Is it something that will make me happy or is it something I'm just getting because I think other people should get it, including buying a house? And then if you do and you can fit it into your system and you can afford it and you love it, then I want to encourage people to spend extravagantly. Now, at the same time, I want you to make sure your systems are right, you're cutting costs mercilessly, you're saving, all that. But what, it, what is so fascinating is that when it comes to, for example, spending on our children, we intuitively get that we're going to splurge and do all this stuff. But when it comes to us with a, a housekeeper or with some cool arcade, we are so quick to talk ourselves out of it. And so we, are, we surround ourselves with this financial advice that tells us all the things we should be doing with our money, all the things we're doing wrong, how we should cut back on everything, and we're torn because internally we have things we want, but we can't admit it to ourselves. So I think if you can go from hot to cool, if you can say, you know what, I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to unapologetically create my rich life. I'm going to travel in the way you do, or I'm going to travel for a month, a year, or I'm just going to buy a coffee every morning and feel great about it. That is your rich life. Mine, by the way, when I started out in New York was, actually when I was younger, was just to be able to buy appetizers when I go out to eat. Because I didn't do that when I was a kid. My young thing was to be able to buy a VCR. Really? Yeah. If I, if I, I knew once I was able to buy a VCR, I made it. Like, Isn't it funny uh, how simple it is? Like to be able to buy, how much did a VCR cost back then? Two or $300. There you go. Mine appetizers, what, 10 bucks? And then it was, I want to be able to take a taxi if I'm going to a meeting in the summer instead of having to go on the subway and sweat. Yeah. I now, never what is that, subway. $10, $15? Yeah. And of course, your dreams can get bigger if your money and your financial life um, goes. In fact, people have this phrase, money changes people. Yeah, it should change people. Your dreams should get bigger. You should be, I brought, my wife and I brought our parents on our six-week honeymoon for the first week. <laughs> and it was our dream, right? Independently, we both came up with the idea and then we talked to each other. And we were able to create those experiences and especially for her parents who had not traveled a lot, to be able to create these magical experiences of us all together because we had saved and invested. And that is something that I want people to know. Yes, money changes people. It should. It can allow your imagination to become even bigger. And then you can use your money to live that rich life. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.